Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio, formerly known as our living room, on our farm here in Western Montana. Uh, well, welcome, Charlie. We're super excited to have you here today. Uh, for everyone listening, today we have Charlie Larson here with us. He's a molecular biologist here in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana. He spent the past 25 years researching host pathogen interactions. He is also the former president of the Bitterroot Water Forum, which I learned today is now known as the Bitterroot Water Partnership. Mm-hmm. And he spent three years on the board of directors with them. Thanks for having me. Of yeah. course. Like, thanks for thanks for coming. Yeah, looking forward to talking to you guys. It's always fun to catch up and um, hear what you guys are thinking about. We think about a lot all we the do. time. It's good. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got to learn how to turn it off sometimes. Totally. Speaking totally. of turning off your mind, you just went on a really incredible fishing trip. I did. Back in, was that mid-August? Yeah, it was the second week in August. Yeah. And uh, where'd you go? Uh I've been going really, it's hard to believe, but almost 40 years to uh, the coast of British Columbia. So north of Vancouver Island. Um, And it's just, it's a beautiful place. My dad likes to say it's like Alaska, but less people, Um, (laughs) you know, and so we, we go salmon fishing and I'm pretty good at catching salmon, not very good at catching anything else, but um, <laughs> it's not a bad thing to catch. Yeah, but uh, we had a great trip. Jesse, my wife, and then my dad and I um, fished for a week, and then I had three of my friends that I've known since since college mm-hmm. come up, and uh, we fished, and we had you know lot, see lots of whales and sea otters, and I had one of the best days of fishing in my entire life. Um, just incredible fishing and um it's such a such a beautiful place and a place i go to recharge and um yeah you know i just my goal my one of my life goals is to to be up there from basically um memorial day to labor day just to see the entire summer see the fish move through see the see the migrations and you know, if you're really hardcore, you go the other way from <laughs> Labor Day <laughs> up to Memorial Day. Yeah. See what the winters are like on the water. You know, I said <laughs> Memorial Day, but I think I could go as early as like April and stay as late as October. That would be incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you get to that point. Thanks. Yeah. And that we can join you part of it at <laughs> yeah. some point in time. Yeah. No, that would be amazing too. <laughs> so you've been going there for 40 years now. 40 yeah. years ago, how were the salmon fisheries But then versus now? Have you noticed any changes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, so this particular area is part of the inside passage. And, um, when I was a kid, we used to go to this, my dad had a much smaller boat and we would load it up with all of us, all five of us and a week's worth of provisions. And we'd go to this little floating lodge called Echo Bay and the Broughton group. And, um, at the time there was this woman named Alexandria Morton, who uh, lived in a float house across the bay and she was a whale biologist and we, you know, I, we would say hi to her and we, we would fish out of this little lodge. It was beautiful. It's, one, it's still one of the most beautiful places. Um, but at that time, um, the idea came along that in order to sort of subsidize these fisheries that were suffering is, is to introduce fish farms. So there was mm. uh, a high number of fish farms introduced into the area and the fishing crashed within um within my childhood from 
you know, when I was seven, we used to go up there and catch all sorts of fish. And, and by the time I was 12 or 13, it, it wasn't like there weren't fewer fish. There were, there were no fish. Crazy. Um, and after Ale- the introduction of these fish. Yeah. And Alexandria Morton has been very instrumental in, in documenting this change, showing that these fish farms are full of, um, pathogenic, um, viruses, parasites, bacteria that, you know, when you raise fish in a pen and there's tons of excrement and, and that these diseases and sea lice get transmitted to native populations of fish. And, Mm. um, it's very hard to show that a fish in the Pacific ocean is, is directly killed by, um, farming it by, by passing through fish farms. But, Mm. um, you know, where do you finding the needle in the haystack? But it's pretty clear that, um, that that's happened. And, um, so only recently have they, has there been a a large movement to remove those fish farms, which has been really great to see, but yeah, Mm -hmm. I've seen it change quite a bit, you know, and we don't fish in the Broughton group anymore for that reason, for that reason. Um, but we go further North and it's beautiful and yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it's definitely something that I, in the back of my mind, I, I understand that at some point, we may go up there and there may be no fish. Yeah. That'd be a scary thought. It's, it's wild. scary to think about, but, yeah. um, I mean, so many people rely on those runs. It is. And, you know, I think it kind of gets into one of these ideas that I was hoping we could talk about today, which is just that, you know, I think we have this idea that, that we can wreck something like a fishery or a wetland or a forest. And that if we just decide we want to fix it and we, put enough money and effort into it we can and i mm-hmm. think again and again we find that that's just not true yeah you know that once these things are gone they're gone and you know you might be able to get something back that resembles it but not yeah not anything that's that that's really even close so mm-hmm. um yeah i it's there's there's all sorts of great signs too you know that that people are aware of this and and i think you know, for me, one of the big things has been, um, this movement, both in British Columbia and, and in Washington state and Oregon and California to try to, um, uh, make more fish available for the Southern resident pod of orcas. And that has resulted in more strict fishing regulations. And, um, as a fisherman and somebody that wants to fish in the places that I fish and there's nobody around and, um, it's hard to accept that we might not be able to retain salmon, but, but it also, what, for me, it's kind of like whatever it takes to recognize that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And if the larger public is concerned about the whales and it's not the salmon themselves, but it's the whales that really drive home the point, then so be it. And, um, I think hopefully, um, I'm hopeful that, that, we're on a trajectory towards um, better practices and yeah. fisheries management and um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I remember in college, uh, I was in a some sort of environment, I think it was just an intro to environmental science. And he would talk about the shifting baseline kind of idea, which is, you know, say you hear some new study out that the salmon populations have recovered a 1,000% since 1995. Mm -hmm. 
but that's only a reference to 1995 as opposed to today. If you were to look at the populations back in, say, the turn of the 18th or 19th centuries, these stocks were, or what the population is today might be 1% of original stocks. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a, a false narrative to be showing that there's this huge recovery happening when really still it's not supporting the type of ecosystem or the type of populations of these larger mammals that consume salmon, whether it being orcas or whales or us. Yeah. 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 And oftentimes I think, um, those measurements can be, can be skewed out of convenience, right? Exactly. It's like, I, I remember when I was looking at, I'd graduated from undergrad and I was looking at, I wanted to go to graduate school and when and I was kind of choosing between, uh, infectious disease, uh, microbiology or and fishermen, I, <laughs> fishermen. <laughs> I thought about being a fisherman. Um, but also I was looking at restoration ecology Okay. and I thought, well, restoration ecology is great. You know, trying to, you know, where I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, big thing are these salt marshes. So where these, um, creeks and rivers meet the ocean and that's huge part. It's, it's the most, um, productive, I think zone in terms of any, um, habitat on earth, right. Where the ocean and the, and the freshwater meet. I mean, it's, yeah. and, and in the Puget Sound area where I grew up, you know, Tacoma, Seattle, Washington area, most of those towns are built on river deltas or the port sits on the river delta and, and they've basically just been destroyed. These, and, and the idea is to try to restore them, mm-hmm. um, which I, I still think to this day that they haven't figured out how Truly to how to, to recover. But then there's also this idea of, well, if we know how to recover them, then we can destroy them, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I felt like the idea of restoration ecology, I think is beautiful. I think we should be doing it, but um, sometimes it can be used as a justification for further degradation of natural landscapes, you yeah. know? Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I think we have to be careful about, you know, what our expectations are and, and what we're really talking about, what the baseline is, you know? Yeah. You know, the Puget Sound is a giant estuary. It, it's a beautiful inland estuary there's thousands of small streams that go into it and it will never within human time scales recover to what it was you know no. it was the most productive fishery i mean more productive than bristol bay you know i mean yeah. just but it it's just there's too much development and um so now for for salmon these these salt marshes these are um what's the term when water Freshwater meets saltwater again. Brackish water. Yeah, that's right. Brackish water. Um, fingerlings of salmon. They they hang around the in these areas, right? Right. It depends on the species. Yeah. Um, some species um, spend more time in these salt marshes, and and I you know th- when I was a kid, this is why I got into science was salmon. You know? Really? Yeah. I mean that that was fish and the ocean, and that was really what drove my scientific curiosity but yeah you've you've got um so so you can think of these estuaries as if one of the coolest maps i've ever seen i still think to this day is if you look at um 
a um, it's a picture of the Earth, and they they can look at uh, wavelengths of photosynthetic organisms. And what you see is that, um, and photosynthesis is primary production. That's the base of every food chain, right? Yeah. And so what you can see in the Earth's oceans is that there's this ribbon of photosynthetic organisms that rings the land, right? And in mm-hmm. the middle of the ocean, aside from underwater volcanoes and a few islands, there's no photosynthesis going on. It's a wet desert. Yeah. And so where this, where we get minerals and nutrients coming from land mm-hmm. in the form of fresh water, meeting the salt water, which has this pH and perfect and, balance you know and so you've you've get you get the elements you get these essential um elements for life and and so that's what happens in these estuaries and so yeah when when the salmon come out of the river um typically rivers in the pacific northwest don't have a lot of um uh um, aquatic insects like we do here in montana Mm -hmm. they're they're very you know the the rivers in british columbia are like gin clear right like like they're just there's nothing in them. Mm-hmm. And so it's at those points where that water meets the ocean, where you get all this primary production. So those fish will stay in these estuarine habitats mm-hmm. um, and feed before they migrate out to the ocean. Uh, and again, it depends on the, the species. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, so you, you were on the Bitterroot Water Forum, of course. Yeah. Um, and we had a conversation, I think it was n- nine months ago, talking about you know phosphate fertilizers and excess soluble nitrogen fertilizers getting into these estuaries and riparian zones. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to discuss a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's, an, that's, that's something that um, I feel like I used to know a lot more about, but the idea of, um, we're kind of talking about eutrophication, right? Essentially, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, where I grew up in the South Puget Sound, my grandparents had a, uh, beach house out on this, uh, muddy bay, you know, it would drain out and there'd be a big muddy beach with oysters and clams. And, um, but around there, all the houses were on septic systems. And so during the summer we would get, um, too much septic input into the surrounding area really? surrounding area and we'd get you know hypoxic conditions so low oxygen c- conditions yep. that would um you know fish don't starve everything yeah right? starve everything of oxygen yeah yeah and so it is a it is a big issue i feel you know i i remember when i was younger you know there's this big move towards i think it was um laundry detergents and and um dishwasher detergents because I think they use phosphate and laundry detergents to make things whiter because mm. it, it phosphoresces white, right? It actually glows white. So, but it washes out of your clothes. And so there's all these phosphates going into the water system. And it, it's, it's funny. I don't hear about that anymore. I wonder if it's changed. We might have to look into that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's that whole thing, you know, when you go to the black light party and you wear the white shirt mm-hmm. and it glows purple. Yeah. yeah. It's because of the phosphates. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. Um, well, we can kind of just dive into it, but um, how did you how did you get into microbiology? Like, what was was there a particular moment in time, or is it kind of a long, drawn out process for you to become a host pathogen <laughs> molecular biologist? Yeah, uh, it 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 took me a long time. I I did not, you know, I I struggled. I 
I, I grew up in a family of physicians. Um, my granddad was a famous forensic pathologist and testified at the Nuremberg trials and, wow. um, and my dad's a successful pediatrician and I have uncles that have, are also physicians. So being the oldest uh, male in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and also having duty. some, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Also loving science. Everybody just thought that I would be a doctor. And I yeah. think I thought I would be until I got into undergrad and I just, I struggled. I struggled to get good grades. I wasn't interested in school and, and I sort of pushed through that and, and learned some things about myself. But, but by the time I had sort of, I think matured, I would say, um, I was already a senior and I didn't have grades to go to medical school. And, um, and I found, you know, I would go and my dad had a pediatric practice and I'd be a summer intern. And I just found that while I a hundred percent respect medicine and what physicians do, I think it's an incredibly hard job and valuable. I just, I wanted to know not just that the antibiotic worked, not just that, um, a specific treatment worked. I wanted to know why I wanted to know mm-hmm. me- mechanistically why. And I got this uh, summer internship between my junior and senior year, um, working for this woman, uh, Dr. Jane Burns at children's hospital in Seattle. And she was studying, um, this bacterium called Burkholderia serpacea, and it infects kids with cystic fibrosis. And, um, it's, it's a ubiquitous organism that, we have all been exposed to, but in the context of CF, where you have this, all this mucus built up in the lungs, it's able to colonize and cause disease. And mm-hmm. it's very hard to, to cure patients of. And, um, and I was looking at this extracellular lipase, this enzyme that digests, um, fats. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that perhaps this, um, efflux pump that this pump that delivers these lipases from, Burkholderia's inside to outside was was actually also being used by the bacterium to pump out antibiotics. So this bacterium is oh, very resistant to antibiotics, and it didn't have classical markers of antibiotic resistance. But w- what's been shown over with several bacteria that, um, or at least several bacteria I know of, that they will have these efflux pumps, these essentially um, systems for detoxifying detoxifying just yeah. getting rid of it yeah. yeah and so uh my experiments were highly unsuccessful <laughs> <laughs> I, I but it it sort of gave me this idea of like you know i graduated from my undergrad with a chemistry degree in large part because i could satisfy all my pre-med requirements and i didn't really have my you know i didn't really i wasn't organized i didn't know what i wanted to do and i i kind of in a weird way defaulted into a chemistry degree, which, um, and then I needed to do something with it. And I didn't want to be somebody that sat in a lab and analyzed water samples. Mm -hmm. And I really liked this idea of microbes, bacteria being these sort of miniature chemical machines Mm -hmm. that, um, so I could kind of combine chemistry and biology. And, and so that's, that's kind of what I decided I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so for these, the, was was this bacteria again with cystic fibrosis? Cystic Bur- fibrosis. <laughs> Burkholderia sepatia. It's it's really related to Pseudomonas. Oh, okay. All right. So, did they upregulate a certain gene to help detoxify themselves through this efflux pathway? Or 
Was you know, <laughs> I know this is kind of. I I back in the I, day, I don't exactly remember. Um, okay. My my experiment was really a, a a chemistry experiment. I was trying to purify this extracellular enzyme and then show that it has indeed activity against mm -hmm. that it could cleave fatty acids. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I you know and I, I never really came back to studying Burkholderia. And, and when yeah. I went to graduate school, I started studying Campylobacter, um, which is a um, gastrointestinal pathogen. Mm -hmm. Most often um, people acquire it from eating undercooked chicken. So okay, um, <laughs> a lot of people um, assume, you know, if you get sick after eating raw chicken, it's salmonella, mm -hmm. but um, quite often it's Campylobacter. Um, Campo, like C-A-M-P-O-Bacter? C-A-M-P-Y-L-O-B-A-C-T-R. Oh, Campylobacter. Campy. Okay. Call it Campy. Campy. All right, Campy for short. <laughs> Campylobacter jejuni. Yeah. Um, and that's where I got into Campylobacter binds um, cells into the intestinal mucosa, and it binds this, this molecule that sits on the surface of those cells called fibronectin, and that binding can stimulate um, an intracellular signaling response. So by binding this extracellular ligand, mm -hmm. the bacteria can um, signal to the cell and have that cell internalize it. So it's kind of like the garage door opener. Interesting. So it can hit this signal from the outside and that this signal will help the bacterium get in. And, and once the bacterium is internalized into cells, then it's um, protected from... Um, being discovered by other immune um, sensors and um, it can replicate and eventually cause disease. Interesting. Mm. Now, what's kind of like the, the end goal of these bacteria in our bodies? Do they want to kill you necessarily or do they want to kind of keep you just <laughs> alive enough to replicate? Well, I think that it, it, it's interesting. Um, most... I don't know if I want to say that, but mm -hmm. so, so, you know, one of the questions that gets asked is, you know, what's a pathogenic bacterium? And, and I would say what makes a bac bacteria path pathogenic is oftentimes context, right? Like, um, Campylobacter is a commensal organism in chickens, meaning it, it, it doesn't have a positive or negative benefit it, but it persists there and chickens carry it. And, mm -hmm. um, so it's not a pathogen there and in, in humans um there isn't any human to human transmission really so aside from if you have water source that's um contaminated by Excrement. humans human sewage yeah. you know mm -hmm. so aside from that but like there isn't transmission you don't sneeze on somebody no no or puke on somebody I guess yeah would be the better yeah effector. but it's not like you know it's not like flu virus or COVID or where there is clear human to human transmission. This is something that uh, people get and they get this horrible gastrointestinal disease with stomach cramps and bloody diarrhea and mm. mucus in their stools. And it's horrible. Um, and you want to take antibiotics, yeah. you know, like there that, are that's, good applications. <laughs> yeah, for antibiotics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, we're kind of dead in hosts. Mm -hmm. Um, interesting. so yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I don't, you know, I haven't studied it for, you know, 
14 years now. Yeah. But at the time, you know, it was still unclear where, where it even came from. You know, if you had flocks of chickens that didn't have Campylobacter in them, mm. and then all of a sudden they're colonized, where does it, where does it where come it from? from? Yeah. Right. Does it come from flies? Quails. Does it come from, yeah. <laughs> quails. These it, darn California quails. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're the root cause of everything. Yeah, no. So, um, but it's, a, but it was, it was an interesting pathogen to sort of develop my sort of love of host pathogen interactions on. Yeah. Um, I had a great advisor and um, really like this, this idea that, you know, that disease occurs because of these interfaces, mm. right? These interfaces between components of us, you know, cellular components um, and components of the bacterium and that those interactions are fundamental to whether or not you have a disease outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so bacteria, like from my understanding, in a way they can, in, excuse me, can communicate. And from my understanding, they can communicate through various like extracellular DNA, like exudations. Is that the right way to put it? So, so I'm not sure about the, the exudate. Not even necessarily an exudate. What I'm trying to say is, so like, say there's an environmental pressure mm-hmm. on a particular colony of, of bacteria. Yeah. Um, choose whichever one you like. Mm-hmm. And say a low-dose antibiotic, say, comes in mm-hmm. and starts to kill certain parts of that population of bacteria. Are the, can the bacteria communicate in some form to the other bacteria in that colony um, that they can somehow upregulate some sort of enzyme or whatever else to help them protect themselves from that environmental pressure. For sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, so the, the classic sort of, uh, bacteria to bacterium communications is called quorum sensing. Quorum sensing with a Q. Yeah. So quorum sensing is this idea. And I think it was discovered, um, that once when bacteria um, we're in low densities in culture. They're sort of functioning as individuals within this, you know, this, this medium where they're growing. But once they get to higher densities, they can sense that. And there's this, these chemicals called auto inducers. Um, and once they sense that they can secrete auto inducer and there's a feedback loop, which, so everybody starts secreting auto inducers and that can lead to things like, um, formation of biofilms, mm-hmm. which are more, um, so a biofilm is this extracellular polysaccharide that bacteria can sort of start to secrete, secrete around themselves. And so it can protect them from antibiotics because antibiotics can't diffuse into that. It can protect them from being phagocytized by, um, immune cells, phagocytes. Um, it can, I think one of the coolest quorum sensing examples is in, um, I forget the name of the fish, but the fish have this organ where there's these, um, there's these bacterium and at night, I believe it's at night, these bacterium grow to a certain density, quorum sensing molecules release and they start to, um, luminesce. They start producing Mm -hmm. light and it's, and, and it's that light that, that is an advantage for the fish. And then this organ gets 
emptied out at some point, the bacterium are refreshed and then they have to grow up again to produce this light. So is that like with the angler fish? I think it is the angler fish. I think there's, there's a lot of different examples yeah. of that sort of, but I believe it is the angler fish. Okay. Yeah. Now, how would the, how would an angler fish? Cause they're, a, they're a deep sea species mm-hmm. predominantly. I mean, you find them washed up, but they're yeah. living there. Yeah. And so how would they be able to tell that it's nighttime or daytime? I wonder if it's like the magnetic forces of, I don't know if they're deep enough where light doesn't penetrate down to that space. Yeah. I wonder how they figure that out. I do too. I mean, it's a little off topic, but I'm just curious. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, there's a, um, there's a guy that studies, um, perception, right? Like human, like our perception. Mm Mm-hmm. Or the perception of a of a dog, right? The per, yeah. Like our perception is, of- is dominated by our vision and somewhat smell and our hearing. But like for a dog, right? Like you've, we've all had our dog go sniff something and it's like um, they don't hear us, right? Yeah. And it's because their perception is dominated by these sensory neurons that are in their, you know, in their nose and they're just taking so much of their brain space. That, <laughs> and so I think... I like to think about it in terms of that, that, that perhaps there is some sort of sensory ability that anglerfish have that is maybe not conceivable or perceptible to us. We just can't even think of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but back to bacteria communicating. So they can just try to remember exactly what you said. The the dog thing really threw me for a loop. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes so much sense. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah. Um, are there any other ways that bacteria can communicate with each other? Is there like different communication between um, unique species, or excuse me, excuse me, like unique phylums? Or so I, so I'm you know, I'm not an expert in bacterial communication, but I do believe that mixed populations can communicate with each other. Um, you know, and, and there's different forms of communication and, and, um, you, you can, you can imagine just a a number of different, I mean, one thing that bacteria can do is they can communicate. They can also exchange DNA, right? They have these, um, uh, pili that are able to transmit DNA from one bacterium to the other. So that's in some ways, I guess, a form of communication. Um, there's, um, there's also, you know, most antibiotics are byproducts of some sort of microorganism, right? So you've got, um, this, uh, microbial warfare going on between different populations. Um, and so, yeah, I I think there's, you know, I don't want to, to misstate anything, but I do, I do know that there's these other, these other systems and quorum sensing is kind of what we all learn about. And and that was not my specialty. That wasn't my expertise is that. Yeah. Well, Um, maybe go ahead. Oh, I was just, I I was actually just going to ask if we can take a quick step back and have you define what bacteria is, what are classifies (laughs) what bacteria are (laughs) what a bacteria is um bacterium bacterium (laughs) yeah and just what the classification would be how would something be classified just for anyone listening yeah 
I think that's an interesting question. So um, I even had to remember myself because this is, but um, if we talk about life, right? So we're talking about living organisms. Um, I think the most well-accepted um, view of that is that there's three domains of life. Um, there's archaea, um, bacteria, and um, eukarya. And so um, archaea and bacteria are single-celled. They're called prokaryotes. So there's two different types of prokaryotes. Um, and the main difference between a prokaryote, either archaea or bacteria, and a eukaryote is um, the way their DNA is um, arranged. And in, in eukaryotes, such as ourselves, we have DNA within a nucleus, right? We have this nuclear membrane that packages our DNA into these chromosomes, whereas um, bacteria and archaea do not. Um, they are much smaller than a eukaryotic cell. And so archaea in general um, are not, well, I think most of us when we think of a bacteria would think it's the same as a prokaryote, right? But but there's two kinds of prokaryotes. One's archaea and one's uh, called eubacteria or bacteria. Yeah. So, um, but archaea are these are the extremophiles. These are the these are the bacteria that live in the in the deep sea floor vents mm -hmm. and that make all the 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 in Yellowstone Park have all the they make colors different colors yeah. and they can live in high saline environments and high temperatures and with lots of sulfur and or 150,000 feet up in the stratosphere yeah and yeah. they th and they think these are you know probably the earliest um most primitive organisms on earth yeah um and then bacteria um you know i can't really remember the difference between archaea and bacteria but bacteria have different structures so the more that we understand the genomes and the, and the essentially the DNA sequences of these different um, domains of life, we can kind of start to recognize um, that there are these three distinct branches. Mm -hmm. And um, bacteria in general have a peptidoglycan layer, which is this polysaccharide layer that um, is is often used to target them with antibiotics, such as penicillin. Penicillin mm -hmm. um, is um, prevents um, proper synthesis of, um, peptidoglycan. Okay. Um, and then, and so there's, there's kind of these kind of major, like bacteria are very small. So if you, if you think of, um, you know, a bacteria would be the size of a jelly bean and a eukaryotic cell would be like, uh, the size of a, uh, dining room table. Oh, wow. Okay. And so what, the reason that is, or, or the, some of the consequences of that is that a bacteria doesn't have to have this cellular organizations, right? Like it can have its DNA sort of diffusely spread throughout mm -hmm. its cytoplasm. Just floating around in there. Because it's very small, right? And so diffusion can move things around, like things can just freely get to where they need to go. There's small distances. Whereas when we start talking about eukaryotic cells, they're highly organized. They have these nuclei. Mm -hmm. They have... Um, Mitochondria. Mitochondria, which are actually bacteria that yeah. have, yeah, these endosymbionts. Um, they've got uh, all these organelles, these membrane-bound organelles, and these sophisticated um, um, 
cytoskeletal components. So they've got structure that allows things to be trafficked around and, um, they have philia, right? Do, do archaea or bacteria have various modes of transportation? Or is that only? Yeah. Yeah. So the flagellum is a, yeah, Yeah, the the flagellum, um, is the, is a, is one way that bacteria are motile. Um, so yeah. And I think one of the things that, that I like to think about most with bacteria is just that I think when we're talking about whether we're talking about um, a salt marsh or we're talking about um, our own gut health, mm-hmm. like these things are crucial because, you know, humans, bacteria were here as our species evolved. We, you know, it's not like we became humans and then bacteria showed up in mm-hmm. our guts, right? Mm-hmm. Like from our, our most ancient ancestors, we've been living in this soup of microbes, bacterium and, um, viruses and single cell eukaryotes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, they're, you know, they're really important to our, to our function. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it is from learning about how bacteria in our, in our gut can be responsible for something wrong 50 to 50 to 90% of the production of serotonin dopamine mm-hmm. that's in our bodies and that they're able to upregulate. I don't know if that's the correct term, but upregulate the amount of serotonin based off of the interactions that are happening in our gut, whether or not it's an interaction with the central nervous system or, or maybe not the central, but the peripheral 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 nervous system. Thank you. Yes. Um, can affect our just everyday life or quality of life. Well, and that our, in that, um, reciprocally, like our bacteria respond to our neurotransmitter molecules, right there. So, you know, the, the largest, the largest, um, nerve in your body is the vagus nerve that goes from your gut to your brain. Straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that, that axis, right. Mm-hmm. Can, can transmit signals both directions and um, have profound implications on your health, on your mood. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of those things we know that it happens, but it's, it's incredibly complex and um, it's interesting. Yeah. It is super might take a lifetime to understand it or many generations. Yeah, really, truly now. So you, you, Let's get to host pathogen <laughs> <laughs> conversation. That was a good warm up there. We're just trying to better understand what bacteria are. But um, so I know you can't really talk about who you work for, but could you talk about maybe the type of bacteria that you're maybe currently researching? Yeah. Like what are you willing to, yeah, to have yeah, a conversation I, about? Yeah, I just I just can't be repping anybody yeah, here. That's right. Um, but yeah, so I've I spent... Like I, like I mentioned earlier, I did my graduate work on Campylobacter, and then I came to um, the current institute that I'm at. Um, it's sort of a, um acad- academic model of research. Um, and I started working on this bacterium called Coxiella, which is a obligate intracellular pathogen, which means that this is a bacterium that, um, much like a virus, um, does not replicate um, is not metabolically active unless it's inside of a host cell. So, you know, viruses are not considered, um, living because they require, 
um, a host cell, host organism to, to fulfill their life cycle. Mm-hmm. These are considered living, but they need to be intracellular um, in order to, um, in order to replicate. And this particular bacterium um, would elaborate this, this really fantastic uh, vacular um, replication niche inside the host. And so this um, host cells, the cells that make up our body are, you know, they're surrounded by the plasma membrane. And then within that plasma membrane, there are a number of endomembrane systems that, that the cell uses to organize different functions. Um, and one of those compartments is called the lysosome. And it's, it's basically the trash compactor of the cell. Um, <laughs> it's where, you know, when you have, um, we think about, uh, you know, in the most simplest story, we talk about white blood cells coming and clearing an infection. And what white blood cells do is they, they go and they find this microbe and they, they have these um, philopodia, these membrane extensions that grab it, they internalize it, they package that pathogen or whatever it is into this membrane-bound compartment and they traffic it to the lysosome. And the lysosome is an acidic compartment with all these enzymes and they degrade it. And that's how, in a very simplistic way, that's how the system works. Mm. Well, this particular pathogen that, that Coxiella will get internalized, it goes to the lysosome and it's quiescent. It, it's not doing anything, but once it gets to that acidified environment, the acidity awakens it and it takes... It, it parasitizes the cell from the lysosome. It creates this very large lysosomal compartment that can take up the entire cytoplasm. And the miraculous thing about it is the cell doesn't die and the cell doesn't signal to other cells. You know, oftentimes mm. cells are able to sense when they're infected and they will send out these signals to cells surrounding them. You know, yeah. I'm infected. Come, you know, get rid of me, yeah, you know, protect yourself, protect yeah. yourself. But really they're, they're the alarm bells don't get, get um wrong um at least initially eventually they will you know yeah um but it's able to live inside this compartment and um and replicate and um and so what i studied for this pathogen was that um it has a secretion system and so um the bacterium once it gets inside the cell starts secreting these proteins a whole slew of them and they have different functions some of them block cell death some of them we believe block immune detection some of them recruit membrane from the cell mm. and so this pathogen sits in this vacuole and orchestrates subverts all of hi, kind of hijacks the host cell and 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 does that by secreting these proteins into the host cell and so my project was really to try to identify those proteins um, and then figure out what they do like you know, we know, we know they're important. We know that they're required, but we don't know kind of why they're, what what they do. So very basic fundamental biological questions of, you know, um, what pathways are important within the cell to be, um, modified in order to create this replicative niche for the bacterium. So you said Cox yellow? Coxiella. Coxiella. Coxiella bernettii. <laughs> All right. Um, what are the human implications with this bacterium? So it's, it's, a, um, it's a pathogen that causes a flu-like disease. Um, and I think 
especially pre-COVID, you know, a lot of us got flu-like diseases and we were like, all right, I got the flu. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think more of us became aware, especially during COVID, that it it could be a variety of things that cause the flu-like symptoms, right? Um, And so Coxiella causes a flu-like disease. It's typically self-limiting. People people don't die from it. Um, But this particular bacterium also has a, another interesting component of its biology. It's one of the few pathogens that it's able to parasitize cells from the lysosome, but also when it's released in the environment, it's incredibly stable. Um, and it has this spore-like form. It's not technically a spore. Spores are gram neg- or have to be gram-positive bacterium, and there's certain uh, criteria, certain genes that um, that are required in order to call something a spore. But this is a similar idea. It creates these spore-like um, forms, and they're very persistent in the environment. And so um, during the Cold War, um, a number of uh, governments, countries around the world, including the United States, were interested in developing Coxiella as a bioweapon. Interesting. Um, so that... Um, Just spray it from airplanes and know that it'll persist on whatever environment hot, cold, UV degradation, they can resist all that. Yeah, and, you know, most bacterium, uh, most bacteria, I should say, um, you know, if if you leave them out in the sun, if you let them dry out, they die. You know, E. coli, you know, um, is sensitive to to, um, UV radiation. If you let it sit on a a rock for 10 days, it's probably all going to be dead. Yeah. Whereas Coxiella won't, it can survive for years. And so that property alone made it, um, useful. Um, the idea that if you have a pathogen that makes the entire, um, opposing force sick, but doesn't kill them could potentially be good because it takes more, um, resources to take care of sick people than it does to take care of dead people. Um, so that, it's, I've I've read about it, um, but yeah, it's it's a uh, it was it was you know there's a there's a um, research base down in Utah called Dugway Proving Grounds, mm-hmm. and um, the stories that I've heard is basically that during the Cold War, um, Seventh Day Adventists, which were conscientious objectors yeah. to um, fighting, would volunteer for these trials, and they would put them in mock houses and drive fly planes over the top of them and drop agent and look at how it infected them and wow wild 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 stuff that really should have never happened um volunteering comes in many forms i suppose it does um (laughs) (laughs) but um so but it's for me it was just it's very interesting biologically there's few bacterium that are that stable yeah so i worked on that for close to 13 years and Mm. and now i've moved on to to viruses you have i have you have yeah what's uh so what's the difference between a bacteria and a virus well one thing that i think is really interesting um is if you look at um phylogenetic trees so um the the related relatedness of the three domains of life it's a tree right Mm -hmm. we've all seen these trees which means there's a common ancestor right viruses are different 
there's different lineages, but for viruses, there's multiple different lineages that don't have common ancestors. So that's one thing mm-hmm. that I learned. Aliens. Aliens, <laughs> totally. Must be. Um, but viruses are, again, much, much smaller than bacteria. Yep. So, so magnitudes, orders of magnitude smaller. Um, they have very small genomes. So, um, whereas a bacterium might have, um, 2000, 5,000 proteins, 5,000 genes. Um, viruses typically will have 10, 20, 30. Um, and they are able to, um, get a lot out of those, those few, those few genes. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the other property of a virus, whether it's a virus that infects a bacterium or, um, a eukaryotic organism like a human, they need a host cell, um, to replicate. They, they're, they're this package of genetic material that gets, um, into host cells and that, that genetic material, um, uses the host cell machinery to replicate the genetic material and to synthesize components of the virus and to package that into more infectious viruses. That's wild. Um, just trying to picture that tiny amount. So the main differences then you would say is that this bacteria able to self replicate Mm -hmm. with their own, for lack of better words, like endogenous, yeah, that's great. Um, machinery, machinery, mm-hmm. yeah. But viruses just can't. They've no. never found a single virus that can do it on their own. No, yeah. no. I mean, and that defines a virus is that it requires um, a host, mm-hmm. a permissive host, for rep- replication and to produce um, infectious um, variants. Yeah. Okay. So then, bacteria must shit. Right, they must have some sort of excrement right coming out of them. If there's metabolic activity happening inside them, for sure, there's some sort of waste product. For sure. And what what kind of waste products could that be? Well, um, I mean, there's many. There's, there's many, but it's I mean, gosh, I the for it depends on the bacterium. Yeah. Right. So aerobic bacterium um, use oxygen. Yeah. Right? They consume oxygen to metabolize um, different carbohydrates or proteins or whatever their substrate is to generate energy. And then the byproduct is some sort of oxidized, right? I mean, oxidation is what's going to kill us all in the end. <laughs> <That's> um, <true. laughs> so, um, but yeah, the, um, you know, it, it's, you know, you mentioned, uh, um, bacterial communication, mm-hmm. right? And so one of the things that bacteria will sense is, um, you know, consumption of um, available nutrients and accumulation of byproducts, and that can cause them to shut down replication, form these biofilms, do all these things. Um, yeah, but in terms of the exact byproducts, yeah, I wish I wish I knew more. Um, so, you know, in, in today's climate, there's certainly in the past couple of decades, right. There's been a huge onset of research and development on using, well, genetically modified bacteria for the production of 
various lipids, various carbohydrates, mm-hmm. you know, even fermentation of sugars into alcohol, though I think that's predominantly yeast. I'm not sure if bacteria can do that or not. But regardless, there's they're using this for industrial and consumer good applications, mm-hmm. right? Are you familiar with much of that work or? Um, to some degree, I think, um, you know, the, you know, for millennia we've used yeast to ferment sugars, Mm -hmm. whether they're from, uh, grains or Mm -hmm. grapes to, to create alcohol or to create, um, you know, CO2 to make our bread rise, uh, rise. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, there's been, um, I think a lot of interest in, in biofuels, mm-hmm. um, or the production of, um, macromolecules, biological macromolecules for other purposes, cooking oils or, yeah. um, but essentially, you know, in my view, which I, I'd like to acknowledge could be wrong. It's essentially the same idea, which is, can we use, um, the metabolic capacity of microorganisms, whether it's yeast or bacteria, I think a lot of times it's yeast, um, or, um, and, and yeast are eukaryotic organisms, right? So Mm -hmm. they have, um, cyanobacterium, um, some of these, um, floating cultures of, um, um, photosynthetic back, uh, microorganisms that are typically eukaryotic single-celled mm-hmm. organisms but um essentially using their metabolic capacities to to generate um you things that we need yeah you know and um if olive oil wasn't good enough you're, you're you might be eating uh cooking oil made from genetically modified bacteria here soon yeah yeah i i saw that um that that article that you sent or the company that's that's essentially doing this, and they're saying it's the, it's a it's a greener way, it's a more um, sustainable way of producing the fats that we use for food, and yeah. um, and it to me it it you know on the surface it seems like a great idea. Yeah. Um, could it could there be underlying implications that we don't yet see that might have downstream effects on? the environmental quality or environmental health and human health. Oh, I think for certain, um, that I, but I don't see them, you know, and I think, um, you know, it's, 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 it's something that I'd really like to hear an expert opinion on. Me too. You know, um, but I, but I, you know, there's, there's these processes that are like fundamental to life whether it's, you know, we do need fats. It's, it's, it's not just a convenience. Like we need these lipids, right? Yeah. Um, we do need nitrogen. We do need carbon fixed, right? Yeah. Like we need these and these, it's amazing that, you know, how much we depend on the microbial world to produce these sort of fundamental building blocks to what we do. And, and I, I think it's a, I think it's an acceptable idea um, to, to genetically modify these organisms. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't just mean by default that I, I, that it's good or bad. Right. Yeah. Like, I think we need to think about what, 
what are the implications? And, yeah. and, and once, you know, we start going down that path, be vigilant and, and continue to monitor what it means. Yeah. And for anyone that's not familiar, the, I don't know if you can call this a farm, but the business <laughs> that this idea comes from, or that is working on this concept is called zero acre. And their idea is that they're creating a better purpose oil, they call it. So an oil that, well, here, this is just from their website. It says an oil that doesn't contribute to increasing rates of disease or massive environmental impact. So that's their big argument for what they are avoiding. That's a And <laughs> here, big, let, let me just finish this. Big ask. Um, so big the, the oil that they make is from sugarcane plants. So that in itself, in my mind, is going to have impact because the sugarcane needs to be grown somewhere. How mm -hmm. that's grown, I'm not certain. Um, well, that's the feed source for the bacteria then to then produce. Oh, yeah, yeah. Produce. They have to grow it, right? Yeah, they do, They're, of like, course. I think yeah. this is the physical plant. Yeah. Um, and so it just says that it's made from sugarcane plants. It's a cooking oil that cooks better, tastes better, feels better, does better for the planet. I mean, it's fair. It's a lot of hype, right? And I'm not going to dig on this 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 company here, but... You <laughs> it's know, intriguing, though. It's intriguing, for sure. But, you know, how many times have humans gone down a road just because we have invented something or a new technology is put into circulation? And before we really know what, what the implications are on our populations, all of a sudden it's ubiquitous ac across this world. And For sure. I think we are very hasty and impatient on um, using our power to genetically ma manipulate various organisms for seemingly the betterment of society. And yeah. it, I'm not arguing that it's always bad by any means, right? There are some mm -hmm. positivities when it comes to genetically modified organisms. I, th I think so. I think oftentimes we get ourselves in trouble when we try to prescribe one solution, mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, there, there may be it may be a beneficial um, approach in certain parts of the country, yeah. whereas other parts it's not. Because essentially, if, if I'm understanding it right, they're saying that um, that their process is um, less destructive to the environment than um, extracting oil from canola or extracting oil from soy, soy or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. That may be true. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it could also be, again, maybe that makes sense when the soy fields are a thousand miles away. Mm -hmm. But maybe it doesn't make sense if you if you live in a town or live in a state that has readily available soy. You mm -hmm. know, I yeah. think what I keep coming back to more often is that it's the we are hasty to accept these new strategies. And in a lot of times for me, it seems like, well, the strategy isn't the problem. It's the industrialization. It's the expansion. It's the, it's the lack of, um, selectivity that we use to, um, to, to determine how we're going to do things. Mm -hmm. Um, and that we have, you know, too much corporate control over, over, you know, I mean, a lot of the, products that we use and and that and that it creates a scenario where a, a, an environment where 
things that are more appropriate are just are just out competed out of the out of the marketplace and and I think you know our generation is and maybe maybe our previous generations too but we're more attracted to this idea of um using things that we can make ourselves that come locally and 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 there's there's local like this farm in this valley but there's also local like the pacific northwest and local like north america Mm -hmm. and local you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. there's all these different levels um and i think i like to think about that in terms of um these new technologies and like where where does it make sense i mean we we don't recycle glass in montana right right yeah which is and which is is insane (laughs) but but i want to be objective about it is it because that you know the amount of fossil fuel it takes to move it doesn't make sense here whereas Mm -hmm. if you're in a metropolis seattle seattle things are closer you've got much more critical mass of of glass and it makes sense Mm -hmm. um so um yeah just having having these kinds of conversations and having leaders and you know that that actually can think about this stuff you know and like you said not be so hasty Mm -hmm. say all of a sudden there was a a law that was passed and all of a sudden zero acre farms is now the sole producer of all oils for consumption around the world Mm-hmm. Well, sugarcane is grown in the subtropics and tropics, right? It doesn't right. survive in Montana. So that's never going to be a feed source for a locally produced oil. No. Well, canola oil and soy oil, soybean oil is produced right here. Sunflower. Sunflower oil, various yeah. other oils. Now, yeah. there's a lot of argument out there about how bad these fats are for our health, whether or not it's true. I'm still researching, researching and, and learning to figure out what opinion I have on that. But like you said, it's just not a local application for the production of, of oil. Yeah. You know, would that push out olive trees, right? In Italy and various other areas of, well, I don't know where else. (laughs) Isn't it just Italy that Italy and California, I think there's olive orchards and, um, Greece, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Greece and probably (laughs) some way more than Turkey probably too. And yeah, (laughs) which is Mediterranean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of soybean, it's a, it's uh, created this symbiotic relationship with an endophytic bacterium. Mm-hmm. There's a few different kinds. I think that they like to build structures that these bacteria can colonize in their nodules. But um, have you spent much time learning about endophytic nitrogen fixers? Or yeah, so I, gosh, I my one of my graduate advisors, one of my PhD advisors, was this. A uh, guy named Michael Kahn, and he would. He well, one, he, one <laughs> yeah, Mike Michael Kahn, he was great, <laughs> but he would, he asked usually asked me the toughest questions, um, and he studied uh, rhizobium, so um, one of the species of bacteria that um, live in these root nodules, and yep. you know it's a fascinating endosymbiotic relationship where you've got this these two processes right so you've got this plant through photosynthesis that can take carbon dioxide right when it's super stable molecule right carbon two oxygens super stable very hard to break apart but 
through the process of photosynthesis, this this shoots and, electrons in it. <laughs> yeah, and you get carbon that's that's usable, right? In the and form then, of starches and carbohydrates, like right? Meat, and, yeah, like and exactly. Yeah, carbohydrates, sugar, all that stuff. Yeah, and then in the roots, you've got this this microbe, right? Um, these these rhizobia that invade the cells of the root, and they are able under these low oxygen conditions to sequester nitrogen, which is two nitrogen molecules bonded together. Another extremely strong bond between two um, atoms. And again, nitrogen is like one of those fundamental things we need, right? Yeah, it's the building block of life. And so there's this exchange that occurs where the bacteria um, are able to essentially parasitize carbon in the form of, I think it's sucrose, some sort of polysaccharide. Um, and it, and the, the plant tolerates that because it gets um, fixed nitrogen in the form of ammonia mm-hmm. from the bacterium that it can use to um, nitrogens um, in lots of amino acids. So building proteins, it's also found in um, nucleic acids. So um, And the structure of the plant too, and like the, the stru- physical structure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating. I mean, like we are here today because of this symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, and you might not know the answer to this. I won't presume, but you know, so these bacteria are, for lack of better terms, invading this plant. But somehow, this plant understands and does not upregulate or has an immune response to this. Or maybe it does a little bit, but then it realizes who they're working with, and they're like, oh, okay. There, it's you know what, and I think that that whole interaction of um, of the plant deciding whether or not it allows these root nodules to persist, or whether it sheds them, is is uh, very complex, and I don't think it's mm-hmm. it's it's like a it's something that we can fully predict. And there's also this thing that happens, which been described as sort of the tragedy of the commons where you get these other bacteria that show up and they grab onto these sugars that the plant's producing but they're not producing any nitrogen and so they're you know they're the real parasites you know it's um and so you can get these situations in these root nodules where some are more productive than others um and somehow the plant senses this um and and i'm not sure those mechanisms but it is interesting to note just that um that not all root nodules are colonized colonized and even the ones that are colonized you know some of them aren't productive yeah um it's really interesting you bring that up because i was doing a little um reading this morning on the history or the um the evolution of this symbiotic relationship with plants and Mm -hmm. these nitrogen fixers and they were trying to understand from my understanding, I'll take a stab at this. This is all new information <laughs> to me. Um, but they were trying to figure out if, you know, this was, it's kind of confusing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, their main question, these plant geneticists is why this happens. Like, could you, how do I, how do I describe this? Bear with me here. <laughs> you mean sort of chicken egg hypothesis stuff? Yeah. Like, like, does the plant need the? Did the plant? Is it? 
was it a plant sort of stealing nitrogen from the bacterium or was it the bacterium parasitizing the plant and the plant being okay with it and the only way that it's okay is because it's producing nitrogen so the authors uh i pulled the information out but the authors considered three possible influences on the presence of this partnership Mm -hmm. in history was there an ancestor that underwent underwent a predisposition event that allowed the symbiosis to evolve did the symbiosis independently evolve over multiple time stamps throughout history or did the symbiosis uh was it independently lost multiple times as well and so they started to look at genes and sequence various um i think i'm not sure if it was phylums of plants but different categorizations of of plant species some that had nitrogen fixers in that specific categorization Mm -hmm. or and some of those species of plants that are in that categorization weren't nitrogen fixers like for example, I'm not sure if this is true, but like, say there's a certain bean out there. Most beans are nitrogen fixers, but there might be some species in that yeah. categorization that just don't have haven't involved this symbiotic relationship with these organisms. And so, they wanted to figure out like, what are there specific genes that are kind of allowing for this this symbiotic relationship to happen? And lo and behold, they found this gene that fit the bill and what they kind of realize is you either use it or you lose those genes, right? So there's an upregulation in that gene that can allow this interaction to happen. But for some reason or other, maybe there's this colonization of a different bacterium into those nodules on the plants that then pushes that symbiotic relationship away and it has a downstream effect over time in evolution where then this bacteria or this plant just downregulated those genes that were involved with this. Mm-hmm. Um, relationship, which I thought was fascinating that you just brought that up now. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think so. So these are plant genes. They are. I think you know it. It makes it makes it makes sense. It's kind of um, you know so it, so genes encode proteins essentially, and mm-hmm. that has a energetic cost and and. Um, if you can, if you're making something that doesn't benefit you, then why have it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the context of bacteria and and viruses, we can see that, you know, which is essentially evolution, uh, you know, and you can see these. So, so my teacher would always say populations evolve, individuals do not. Right. Mm -hmm. Because evolution is the change in. Uh, gene populations or g- gene presence throughout a population, right? Yeah. So, um, but you could you can see with viruses and bacterium how evolution occurs because these, you know, bacteria some are replicating themselves every twenty thirty minutes, right? And even if it's an hour or two hours on a human time scale, you know, there's multiple millions of generations, right? Mm-hmm. And um, viruses the same way. One thing I've heard about what I've learned about viruses is when they replicate, they make a lot of mistakes. They're messy. They're messy, but that's, that's a, that's beneficial because you end up with all these, um, progeny that have all these different mutations. And, and so we've seen with 
something like COVID, right? Mm-hmm. It's constantly mutating. COVID mm-hmm. is constantly in the laboratory. It's hard to take a strain and propagate it. Certain strains, it's hard to propagate them in the lab because they just, they change. Hmm. So then how do you study them, you know? Um, which there's ways, but it's just interesting to me um, the different ways. And then plants, plants have really complex genomes. They have multiple copies of chromosomes and um and, and, you know, I don't know a ton about plant genetics, but, um, yeah, just the ability to, I think the question to me is always, you know, there's this, it's easy to just be like, oh yeah, random mutations have occurred and those random mm-hmm. mutations are beneficial, but there does seem to be in certain instances that random mutations aren't totally responsible for the speed at which, um, things can evolve. And so. Um, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of different mechanisms beyond that. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of genetic mutations, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so antibiotics, yeah. so it's a big, mm-hmm. big hot topic right now these days. I mean, certainly within the past 10 years, I would say, yeah. um, so low, low dose amp- antibiotics, you know, what, what are these downstream effects that, you know, these bacteria have with with pressures of this these low dose applications of say glyphosate for example i mean that's just one example but yeah well i mean you know the the promise of glyphosate was that you know uh these (laughs) these plants couldn't possibly live without the a functioning shikimate pathway right so this biosynthetic pathway um but what we find is of course um and it's particularly um, pathogens and um, invasive weeds and, and whatnot have the ability to um, uh, develop mutations that that make them resistant to either antibiotics or herbicides. And, um, you know, I, the idea, it's a, I think it's a false idea to think that we will ever live in a world without disease and or, or pests because, um, despite our best intentions, despite our best (laughs) intentions and, and, and that, you know, at least in the context of, of human biology, um, there's lots of evidence to suggest that parasites being exposed to parasites and pathogens, um, you know, that, that, that idea that what doesn't kill you will make you stronger, will strengthen your immune system. And that's true to some degree. There's, there's certain pathogens that, you know, I, I believe measles um, erases your B cell memory. So it it, it basically, um, so there was a study I read that I believe it's measles, but basically that kids that got measles didn't die of measles, but they were far more likely to die of other diseases mm-hmm. because they would lose their um, their immune memory. Right. Um, but you know, in many cases having an immune system that's, that's challenged and it is strengthens your immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only, the only problem with challenging your immune system is if you challenge it too much, you can, you can die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. and that's, you know, I, and, and w- when we talk about, you know, low level application of antibiotics, my, my understanding of that, or what I instantly think of is in the agricultural industry, yeah. the production of, 
um, of livestock Mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, that there's, you know, actually Campylobacter was one of the first reasons why they outlawed using, um, oh, I, I used to know the, the class of antibiotics, but they used to treat chickens with, mm. uh, antibiotic to get rid of Campylobacter and within not very long, I want to say. prophylactically too. Yeah, prophylactically. Yeah. Um, so they Meaning don't, before. they don't treat chickens with antibiotics anymore. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, yeah. I think there's other antimicrobials that they use, but, but I think that often just comes down to kind of what I was saying earlier, just industrialization. Yeah. That, that, that we just want to make a lot of money and, and try to produce something at levels. Um, I mean, we love new technology. Mm -hmm. Humans love new technology. And all of a sudden we try and apply it to every single possible problem that we have. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, there's an uh, antibiotic. Let's just dose our chickens with it and see what happens. That'll work. But Mm -hmm. there's, like we said, there's downstream effects. Yeah. And I think with antibiotics, you know, there's, there's implications, um, in a lot of ways, but, one of the most serious ones is that they're losing their effectiveness, Mm -hmm. you know, despite our best efforts to create new ones. Yeah. It's well, there's only so many, That's true. you know, (laughs) we do have a common ancestor and, and that's, uh, you know, if you believe, if you believe in evolution and you believe in, in, you know, there's three domains of life, you know, the way that antibiotics work in, in most ways, um, is they target, components of bacteria that we do not or we likely don't share right Mm -hmm. so so antibiotics that target peptidoglycan because we don't have enzymes that make peptidoglycan Mm -hmm. or target um certain protein synthesis pathways Mm -hmm. yeah um interesting thing though is and, and i don't i don't know too much about this i've just started kind of looking into it the interesting thing is as though we actually have bacteria in us and not just in our guts but we have mitochondria which have certain um, pathways that that could be targeted or are targeted by specific classes of antibiotics so and mitochondria have unique genetic like genetic they have their own DNA yeah Yeah, they do mitochondrial Mm. DNA that you inherit from your mother Mm. just your mother just your mother sorry boys yeah exactly (laughs) yeah Um, so yeah it's I think yeah, I, the, the use of a- antibiotics have been overprescribed and they've been um, overapplied. Um, and I think there's a real, well, I know just from talking to physicians, there's been a real recognition of that. and Which is good. Mm-hmm. And good. And, um, you know, and, and, and I think that um, it's happening some within our food supply, but, you know, when you see a package on a package of chicken that says antibiotic free, it's, it's just kind of ridiculous to me because, because it, it, you know, they didn't give antibiotics to chicken. It's it's not something that they do. (laughs) It's like, it's like saying it's certified organic when this is just how you grow food or it's gluten free when there never should be gluten involved anyway. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's redundancy is like not erroneous, just, it's just not needed. Yeah. Or a it's sales it tactic. Yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah. It is a marketing tactic for sure. Um, so back to glyphosate. This yeah. is a hot topic for us right now. We're right. really trying to dive deep into this. It's such, we've been, 
it's become not ubiquitous, I would say, but more and more people are talking about it, publicly talking about it. Well, it's in surface water in a lot of areas. And I know, you know, you, you're the one that sort of explained to me what it's doing to, um, the natural processes of nitrogen fixation and how, um, detrimental it is to, I think in many ways, the way that, you know, regardless of where you stand politically or ideologically, like how we want to grow food, how we want our, where we want our food to come, you know, that we want it to be, you know, we want these natural processes to be the source of, of our nourishment. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Did you have something to say? Mm -mm. So, (laughs) so bacteria form these either commensalistic or symbiotic, sometimes parasitic relationships with plants. You know, we, we really like to, in agriculture, the best we can is to promote these symbiotic relationships and some, to some extent, commensalistic. Um, and then, so these plants can't really utilize or source all of the, the, for lack of better terms, food that they need, the elements that they need for their own pathways, for their own metabolic pathways, for their own development and um, the production of offspring for the mm-hmm. next season or so on. Yeah. And that's food, right? So at the end of a season, you harvest your wheat. And, you know, if that's a GM wheat that's spread with glyphosate, that glyphosate is getting exuded into the soil, mm-hmm. um, either in its degraded AMPA or as the glyphosate molecule. And these things have significant effects on bacteria because, of course, bacteria predominantly, if not all of them, I'm not sure, but most of them utilize the shikimate pathway for the production of various aromatic, um, gosh, I'm getting tired. Amino acids. Thank you. (laughs) Aromatic (laughs) amino acids, tyrosine, uh, phenylalanine, and tryptophan, Mm -hmm. which tryptophan is a precursor to serotonin and melatonin in our bodies. Yep. And so these are essential amino acids that we actually need, or well, not necessarily what we do, but the bacteria are able to utilize these aromatic amino acids for whatever they need in their yeah. metabolic pathways. So it's just this wild connection, this nexus where bacteria are supporting plant life. We consume that food that the plant produces, and then it goes into our gut, which then bacteria break down all of a sudden these bigger molecular molecules into more constituent parts that can be uptaken, uptaken into our bodies for health mm-hmm. so that we can do whatever we need to do in our day. And we're applying glyphosate all over our food, sometimes even at harvest unwashed. And then this gets ground up. It persists, right? Glyphosate yeah. probably has an even longer half-life in like on the surfaces of say, wheat than it does in soils but even in soils the half-life can be sometimes you know like 700 plus days Mm -hmm. um depending on the soil type and the amount of microbial activity and it's wild that we have decided to use this broad spectrum herbicide spread all of our food spray it sometimes even on our forests our roadways our railways on our municipalities getting into our watersheds messing up and causing genetic mutations in fish harming their reproductive fitness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and we continue to do it more and more and more. Yeah. And the basis of all this is how the bacteria are keeping both sides of these uh, macroorganisms alive. If we, if you were to continue to take antibiotics and just dose your stomach every single day, I don't know how well of a life you live if you will no, even live. No, no, I, it's, it's just thoughtless. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think, yeah, I think you've mentioned it earlier. We're kind of repeating history, you yeah. know, whether it's, you know, what was it? The DTT that was DDT. Yeah. DDT. Yeah, yeah. That was sprayed on kids. Yeah. I mean, all this stuff, you know, and, it's weird because you know glyphosate i learned about when i was in graduate school and that was 15 years ago mm-hmm. and i think at the time there was still this idea of well it looks like it's really specific to the shikimate pathway it looks like it's specific to plants and that it's um and that it you know at some level it makes sense that it would work but it was kind of like we think we think um but now i think the evidence is clear that there are these really harmful effects and it's just interesting how hard it is to walk it back right Mm -hmm. and you know and you know you guys are much more in tune with and under and, and knowledgeable about what's happening in the agricultural industry but it is you know, I I do think all these ideas that we're talking about, you know, there's this root, there's this bacterium, there's these, you know, when you're when you're a farmer, it seems at some level you're trying to create this this productive niche, right? Like this productive habitat mm-hmm. um, to produce healthy food, and whether we're talking about you know human health or we're talking about forest health um that's the goal and it's it just seems um it's just incredible how difficult it seems to have really honest conversations and 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 the conversations just aren't happening you know i would really like to hear a really you know a really informed conversation about glyphosate from all mm-hmm. sides. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about using helicopters to spread herbicide, um, on the uh, Bitterroot National Forest, on the Bitterroot National Forest, which happened a few days ago. Yeah. What, what's the thought behind that? And, you know, I, one of the things that I did learn in my restoration ecology, my short career was that, you know, um, Mother Nature, once once we screw things up, Mother Nature doesn't always just fix it in time. Mm-hmm. Like we can mess things up and it goes off on this trajectory that is appears to not self correct, at least in any time scale that's relevant to human right. life. And maybe maybe that's maybe that's fine. Maybe like we need to be stop being so human centric and stop yeah. worrying that, you know, that these patches of cheatgrass are going to exist 
you know, when our grandkids are walking through the forest right. and that, that the more important thing is that we're not spreading chemicals on the planet. And those kinds of questions, you know, I don't have clear answers for, mm -hmm. and I would like to believe that we can develop, you know, um, herbicides that are more specific and less toxic and, mm -hmm. you know, and develop new technologies to fight infectious diseases. And yeah. instead of having broad spectrum antibiotics that you take that, that, uh, kill every single microbe in your gut, you, right. you maybe you take a, uh, uh, engineered virus that only targets, uh, E. Coli specifically, Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, um, but then what are the consequences of that? Yeah. You know, it's, so it's hard to know, but I, I think we just need to slow down. We need to slow down. Yeah. And it, cause I also think these conversations are interesting and I think most people would find the conversations interesting. Um, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe whatever people do, video games, reality TV, <laughs> um, fishing, you know, maybe that's just more interesting than, yeah. um, talk about glyphosate yeah, yeah but i think it's it's fascinating and it it yeah it's it's important to think about and interesting to think about you know the world and your food and how it's all connected yeah definitely and glyphosate we've been finding it's being spoken about more and more but not in a way that satisfies what we're trying to learn and determine and share it tends to be one-sided or it tends to be more of just a I don't know, social media scare type thing where it's just really all they're stating is glyphosate is bad. Yeah. Glyphosate is not good. And it's like, as we watch these different social media things, we're like, but why, but why, but why? Yeah. And there's from in our observation so far, there's really no one out there that's getting into the science of it from both directions. Like why the farmers are still doing this when there's a lot of evidence now. Exactly. That this is not good for soil health, soil structure, plants, or human health. And so that's part of our goal is that we can spend enough time talking to enough people that maybe someone like Stephanie Seneff, um, a research, uh, she's a computer scientist at MIT. Um, she wrote a book all about glyphosate called The Toxic Legacy, which we actually just brought up in our last podcast as well. But she's sounds like a wealth of knowledge on the topic and goes back through the history of glyphosate use and so hopefully the more we continue to talk about it with a variety of people we'll be able to get someone on to have a conversation with us where we can like really dive deep into its inner workings if you will yeah, yeah. and i think what you just said about talking to to farmers that that use it and mm -hmm. understanding that process and what are the economic drivers what are the you know what are the pressures yeah. Why? Why do people? Why are people compelled to use it? And um, yeah, I think that's that's really important. And it yeah. there are some things that these farmers aren't aren't really thinking about, though. And I'm not saying they're dumb, but it's just like this. It's not within their their wheelhouse right now. Like they're spending eight hours a week working, and they don't have time to go onto PubMed or. For sure. Google Scholar right. and really look at the nitty gritty details. Yeah, this is what, what they know. Is, this you know? is what works. Yeah, this is what yeah. my my dad. Yeah, did. I remember when I was so I went to graduate school at Washington State University, and they um, they do a lot of research on because it's all surrounded by wheat fields, and they do a lot of research on no-till 
dryland wheat farming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've shown in multiple different studies that you can do this and, yeah. and it's economically viable. And, but tradition dictates mm-hmm. that you till your land and, and that the risks associated with not doing that are, um, you know, are too much for certain farmers. And I also think it's a, you know, we get into these ideological battles and we, we're, we're a divided country. And, and unfortunately, things like glyphosate use and no-till farming and organic farming get, mm-hmm. like, caught up in, like, these culture wars, which it just seems absurd. It's a waste yeah. of time sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At least now with any productive conversation regarding it. And like being able to see the other side of it. You yeah. Know, having some levity in the situation, understanding why the farmer is still using it. Yeah. Unfortunately, be... there's a dirty little secret with the no-till movement. <laughs> What's that? I don't know if you knew that. No, I don't know anything but about it. Especially for, you know, large-scale commodity crop production. Yeah. Um, in the no-till till movement that's not organic, they're using glyphosate to fallow those fields. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, an insane amount of glyphosate used on these non-organic no-till farms. That doesn't oh. mean it's all of them. No, no, Clarify, no. Because no. there's you know, some small-scale farms that yeah. are organic that are practicing no-till. For sure. So we're talking about specific but, scenarios or yeah. situations. But just because it's no, somebody's doing no-till doesn't mean that they're not using an insane amount of glyphosate on their right. fields. It's For not sure. A guarantee. Yeah. And that just shows, you know, I... I just don't, it's hard to know everything. It really is. And, and I think that's what's, what's great about having these conversations and for you guys to just get people in that have expertises and can, can really speak to, you know, relevant, um, information. Yeah. I was doing a little more research this morning on, on glyphosate and low dose effects on microbial populations in the soil. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to understand how there's these various phytopathogenic bacteria, meaning that bacteria that can, you know, their host is plants mm-hmm. and yeah. they can kill plants, blah, 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 blah. And there's a few different, not mechanisms, but yeah, I guess you would use the word mechanism, mechanisms that allow them to basically circumvent the toxicity of glyphosate and persist in the soil and then populate. And one of them is, like we talked about with the shikimate pathway, is they're actually, um, they acquire mutations in the EPSP synthase gene. And that's that's the, en- like that's the enzyme. It's a synthase enzyme that basically like binds PEP in this other compound. And Roger in the last podcast would know it. I, I think it's like S3P or something. Yeah. But it like disrupts the binding pocket and disrupts the production of aromatic compounds okay so it's the active so that's what glyphosate targets is is this the synthase gene this synthase yeah there's like this like binding pocket yeah yeah that this like particular molecule is only around for a trillionth of a second but it's just like all of a sudden these three couple things happen yep super quick and because glyphosate's just in there yeah it just disrupts the the synthase the catalytic activity and yeah um, so that's one way it can, uh, these bacteria can then increase the production of the EPSP enzyme, uh, synthase and seemingly is to compensate for glyph- glyphosate's disruption in that binding pocket that we're talking about. But it, uh, it like 
reduces the toxicity of the glyphosate because there's just way more opportunity for that that EPSP mm-hmm. to hit that binding pocket. So it reduces toxicity. Uh, then these bacteria can actually degrade and detoxify glyphosate in their bodies. They can, some bacteria can even use glyphosate as a, as a feedstock for phosphorus. They're able to break down this super toxic molecule for mo- to most bacteria and then use it as a source for phosphorus for their own yeah. survival, which is even more wild. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you listened to our last podcast, doesn't matter, but a quick refresher for all the individuals that are listening. We talked about nitrogen fixation with these endo, but also ecto bacteria, ones mm-hmm. that li- don't live on plants. There are just free living nitrogen fixers that are sometimes even on the um, phylosphere. So the surface of the plant, mm-hmm. there's also just, just in the soil, just fix the nitrogen for their own, I don't know, enjoyment or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, I think we wanted Ash and I after the conversation with Roger Moore uh, last week. We wanted to bring up today that so using glyphosate on on these soils is reducing these nitrogen fixing populations that these plants form with. Like for example, GM soy, right? So they change the um, the genes of soy to. Um, not be disrupted by glyphosate through this this pathway that they also have in, in themselves, that shikimate pathway. And these soybean plants, they 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 absolutely need nitrogen. They're pretty heavy feeders, right? So mm-hmm. I'm assuming that because they had such a need for for high amounts of nitrogen, that they form these these symbiotic relationships. I'm not sure what came first, yeah, but the the glyphosate in in many research papers that I've read now they disrupt that symbiotic relationship. So the more glyphosate that we are applying on our on our soils, it reduces these populations of dissociated nitrogen fixation that's happening microscopically all over the planet in our soils, and it increases our reliability on the Haber Bosch process that we talked in the last episode. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that yeah, much vaguely yeah. yeah it's it's the process of making ammonia basically right? yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah from n2 and using natural gas as a feed source yep. for the hydrogen yep. etc so we're becoming m- even more dependent on this process that's extremely energy intensive and unsustainable for the foreseeable future at least unless we drastically change the efficiency of it and then reducing our reliability on this distributed nitrogen cycle that's in our soil yeah and that's a scary thought yeah it it yeah it seems like yeah uh, uh, the wrong direction it's it's not going to end well if that's if if that's the way we're going i mean you know our gosh if we if we if we still keep applying glyphosate our only hope is that our microbial communities will just develop these you know mechanisms of resistance yeah um but um that doesn't seem like the the right thing to rely on you know um yeah what's scary is that some of these extremely important bacteria that nobody thinks about um for the production of food doesn't really show that they're able to mutate or 
have any other mechanisms that can help to detoxify or reduce toxicity to them. One of them being bacillus. It's a bacillus strain called Subtilis. Mm-hmm. And so we actually use that as a bacteria inoculum, um, both on, on the surface of the plant leaves and tissue and also in the ground. Okay. Um, it's one of these incredible bacteria um, that's beneficial for the production of food. But it doesn't, uh, from what I, my understanding so far in the, in the literature, it, yeah, no, that doesn't to. surprise me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, I, I was, I didn't say it very well, but I think it is a false hope. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I, I don't, I, one question that I have that is what, what sort of awareness is there at, in our, in our federal government and the USDA and in any of these organizations for the problems of glyphosate? Do you want to take a step at that one? Awareness? I I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm certain everyone is aware. I think it's more that the effects of it are maybe just more so now being discovered and shared. Kind of like you know anything in science, any new technology, there will be that learning curve and that point of time it takes to figure out like is this actually causing any harm. And I'm sure that when glyphosate first started being used, there was true hope that like, hey, this is the way of the future. But as for awareness in those systems and in governing bodies, I just, I don't know. Maybe it's that there's denial. Yeah. And I think one of the, you know, as a scientist, one of the problems with science is that it's, it's one of the great things about science, but one of the difficulties uh, is that if you can't prove that it's, if you can't prove conclusively, you know, th- then it's like, well, we, we kind of don't know that it's a problem. It looks like it's a problem right. or we think it's a problem, but unless you can demonstrate it, you know, I think we get caught up a lot in that, mm-hmm. that whole, that whole, um, pro- that whole problem. Right? right. And, and when you've got a lot of money wrapped up and, and applying, glyphosate yeah. you know you better yeah. be able to demonstrate conclusively that it's a problem right or else you know you're going to be liable for yeah, yeah. so maybe though maybe I mean, or maybe talks, not right yeah, I mean, there's, yeah i'm sure there's lobbyists in washington's washington dc that are trying to pull the the veil over this this emerging issue for sure unfortunately the epa I think still classifies it as generally recognizes safe to humans generally the, yeah generally <laughs> And the reasoning for this is because we don't have the shikimate pathway in our human genome or in our in our human cells. Yeah. And it's like, well, you fucking idiot. Like, all of the bacteria on our skin and gut do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the issues is that there's pathogenic bacteria that are well-established to mutate or detoxify themselves or degrade this glyphosate. And what happens then? There's research out there that shows streptococcus, various strains of strep or streptococcus uh, bacteria. E. coli, staph, these bacteria can persist with glyphosate toxicity or glyphosate pressure. Mm-hmm. So what is that, you know, we're so there's probably 100 million Americans right there that have dysbiosis and are having shitting diarrhea on a daily basis and wondering why. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. Maybe it is. You don't know. You don't. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, I think that it's a it's a problem, yeah. right? I think that whole question of 
of of needing to know like we have to, well if we're going to get rid of glyphosate we need to know that it's actually a problem we need yeah. to know what the problems are yeah um and correlation is not causation and That's true. um but you know i think the arguments my argue you know the arguments for for reducing our reliance on petroleum products are to are you know there's all these arguments um and and i think to me often the most compelling ones is just quality of life quality of product quality of our environment you know yeah. like i think telling the story of glyphosate and what it does to the natural habitats whether it's our own microbiota or the soil microbiota um i think is is a compelling one and yeah. you know i think a lot of people to me that's enough to mm-hmm. to to change people's minds um because you know yeah weeds in your driveway are annoying but you know if you if you're worried about your dogs and your kids and you know in the in the stream mm-hmm. you know maybe just don't do it yeah well let, let's light maybe lighten up the conversation <laughs> a little bit here <laughs> and we'll move on to the bacillus genus to kind oh, of wrap it things yeah up. yeah That'd sure be an interesting one sure so there's beneficial bacillus bacteria, of course, right? Mm-hmm. There's ones that are in our bodies right now. There's ones in the soil that help plants that fix nitrogen. There's ones that kill us, right? Like pathogenic bacillus yeah. strains. Mm-hmm. Can you do you familiar with any of those? Well, I mean, the most famous is bacillus anthracis, right? Yeah. The spore farmer that, um, yeah, I, I don't precisely remember what its mechanism of uh, pathogenesis is, but yeah and it, envelopes in the mail yeah envelopes in the mail. <laughs> we're exactly. talking about anthrax yeah exactly um and that spore forming ability is is something that is not unique to bacillus species but um they're one of the few species that um or at least one of the more well-known species that do it um what's the subte- spore because you said spore form so, so let's take a step sp- back. Spore forming. So spore formers are um, are all gram positive bacteria, which means um, they have so gram negative bacteria have a uh, membrane um, surrounded by a thin layer of peptidoglycan, and then an outer membrane that sort of coats the surface. That's um, has this molecule called lipopolysaccharide, um, whereas Gram positive bacteria do not have that outer membrane. They have a very thick layer of peptidoglycan. And I'm just thinking of Pepto Bismol every time you yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> Think of it as a. Um, oh man, there's so many connections to peptidoglycan in, st- in, in what we're talking about right now. But um, it's, it's this mesh of sugars that's incredibly cross linked. It's like this outer shell um and it is permeable to ions and macromolecules but it's it's just this big meshwork um of sugars that are um linked together and during spore formation you get condensation of the genomic dna 
and then thickening of this peptidoglycan layer and then sort of desiccation and you get this kind of I like to think of it almost as like a little seed right mm-hmm. yeah you know seeds are these amazing things right because they're just this condensed little nugget of lipids and genetic material and just proteins too and but um so I like to think of it as like a bacterial seed but um I never really studied the whole sporulation process. Yeah. I think I learned it for a test at one point. <laughs> <laughs> but spore, like bacterial spores, mm-hmm. is that how you say it? Yeah. They they are extremely tolerant, right, to all sorts of environmental pressures. Yeah. Right? So, like, UV degradation doesn't really affect them. Right. You know, extreme temperatures. Right. Whether it's hot or cold doesn't affect them. Like, could they survive in space even? Probably. Probably. Yeah. Like, very strong. In their yeah. ability to resist degradation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're, um, yeah. So when you talk about UV degradation, usually what UV does is it creates lesions in the DNA. And that's how, and if you accrue enough lesions in your DNA, you get cancer or the cell dies. Yeah. Um, so they might, you know, space is, there's a ton of UV radiation out there. So I don't, I don't know, true. but it, it probably depends on how long they're out there. Yeah. Um, but same, same with temperature, you know, extreme temperatures and salt and, um, you know, just physical disruption. Yeah. Um, they're, they're very resistant. Um, you know, and the, another spore former is clostridia, um, form spores, um, clostridium botulinum forms, makes botulism, right? Mm-hmm. Botul- botulin toxin, Botox. Right, which um, we Stick use. Stick that in your nose and yeah, lips. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe not lips. But, but that's why we use pressure cookers is to get rid of spore formers. So at a certain amount of pressure and heat, you can destroy spores. Oh, interesting. But um, yeah, that's that's essentially one of the main reasons for using a pressure cooker to, to for long-term storage is to, to kill bacterial spores. Yeah, that's just like canning. Canning food. Canning, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's where there's like botulism sca- scares with mm-hmm. canned food that has a dent in it. Or... Yeah, 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 yeah. Because they'll start, pr- they will wake up and start producing gas, <laughs> and that gas will deform the can. And yeah, don't want to eat that. Uh, but back to Bacillus anthracis. 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 That's what I call it. Anthracis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the anthrax bacterium. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there was a big scare back in the day. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, is it so scary? Should we be worried? Well, I think what's interesting is that a lot of pathogens that are quote unquote scary are, 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 they're ubiquitous in the environment. You know, Bacillus anthracis isn't, isn't like sitting in a jar or in a vial in some Russian lab, high containment (laughs) laboratory in this valley. You know, it's, it's found on. You know, I think most of the natural outbreaks are in um, uh, shops where they work with uh, cowhides, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, so it's it's around. It's just a matter of can you do you know what media to grow it on and select for it, and that's in books. And you know, it's you want salmonella, <laughs> just you know, you could go to your your microbiology resources, and you know, same with salmonella, same with. Um, you know, a lot of these different pathogens. Um, so I'm not, I'm not scared of this stuff. I think, I think when you go into 
pathogen research, it seems like people go one of two ways. They become either less concerned or they become very more concerned. And I became <laughs> less concerned. Contract. <laughs> yeah. So, but I think, you know, it's, it's really hard to know what the right mindset is on this stuff. But I, I just think, um, you know, our bodies, our immune systems are such incredible um, systems that, that, that I try to take care of my immune system. I try not to expose myself to high dosages of pathogens and, Mm -hmm. and, but no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not worried. You're in the wrong wrong line of work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's, it's, it's funny because, um, I don't feel that what I do is, is dangerous. Yeah. You know, I, we, we're really careful and, you know, we're, we, um, you know, have all these procedures and, um, and even before we use, had all these safety procedures, you know, people would get sick and they'd get better, and, Yeah, you know, but yeah. Uh, you familiar with Bacillus megatherium? No. There, it's kind of this, like, um, it's one of those bacteria that it has huge interest in vitamin B12 production. Cobalamin. Okay. Yep. And from my understanding, I don't know too much about them, but I was hoping you might know. <laughs> but oh, it sounds this, like they're kind of like the giant ahead. bacterium. Yeah. 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 They kind of seem like they're the hot rods of protein synthesis. Oh yeah. I think was the quote. Yeah, I think they, the the studies that I've seen with them is you know bacterial cells are very small, and so if you want to understand bacterial processes and how the cell. Uh, the, the structure of the cell, it's nice to have a really big bacterium. Yeah. And so using this large bacillus mega, megatherium, megatherium, megatron. Yeah. Megatherium, <laughs> I think is a, is a nice model system for people that are trying to understand, um, bacterial structure, structure and fu- function. Cause mm-hmm. I think they're, they're big. They're like 30 microns or something. They're whereas, big, yeah. whereas like coxial is one micron, you know? So it's like an elephant and a, shrew or something yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it's so. just so hard for people to to conceptualize, conceptualize yeah. bacteria right because you just don't see them I, right. i've never seen i've never seen one unless i've been looking through a microscope. yeah it is and even a virus right mm-hmm. yeah even smaller yeah yeah i always mm-hmm. think of myself inside my house as being like a well, my house is really small, so I'm I'm probably a very large bacteria in a very small cell. But like, yeah, you know, like because when I look at them under a microscope and I've got bacteria in a cell, it's like, you know, it's one little dot inside of a much bigger, bigger area. But yeah, the 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 sizes and scales are very different, and then viruses are are, are so much smaller than bacteria. So yeah, it's it's hard to think about that. And so for pathogenic bacteria, you know, if you have, say, one bacillus anthracis, anthracis? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bacillus anthracis, like, that's probably not going to be a vector of pathogenness. Yeah, yeah. Most, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Right. Most pathogens, there's an infectious dose. And yeah. there's there's few where the infectious dose is 10 organisms or... That's low. That's very like, low. Okay. But, but typically, you know, it's uh, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands that um, are required for, um, there's what's called, uh, ID 50, right? So there's a lot of randomness and in infection, right? There's a lot of 
host specific things, pathogen specific things. So they, they define the infectious dose 50. So what, how many bacteria does it take to infect 50% of the cells or 50% of oh, the, the animals? Okay. Because it's very hard to get a hundred percent. Um, so you can, you basically can do these dilution schemes and figure out 50%. So that's, that's kind of what we use for, hmm. for determining okay. infection, you know, and we don't, do human infections anymore they used to do some human what? infections yeah in utah with uh you know when i was working on campylobacter there was one um i think they did it with um i think they were just volunteers and they infected him with campylobacter and looked at dosage and was it the utah story no no this about? was no? like this was this was like like a re, like a clinical uh, doctor like looking at infectious dose I, I remember I think his name was the last name Smith because I you know as a as a researcher it's it's like there's you know one of one of the hardest things about studying disease whether it's infectious disease or non-infectious disease in humans is that you you can't study humans and we're all different mm-hmm. you know and so it's hard to it's hard to know you know what actually happens what or what happened or um and so some of these old papers i mean it's it's <laughs> totally unethical but for for you know it's interesting it's it's absolutely wacky that they they did that but they i did. don't know i think the ethics mm-hmm. boards have gone too far <laughs> if they, they want to be infected let them let them get paid and yeah yeah All yeah right, hey. yeah why not get yeah. Give me a number. Yeah. Give me a billion dollars, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You want to talk about pro-choice. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If I want to get infected, I should be able to get infected. Yeah, it's my God-given right. Exactly. If I want to eat raw chicken. Yeah, if I want to snort some bacillus anthracis spores, then (laughs) I should be able to do that. Yeah, look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's two over two hours in. Yeah. Almost. Coming up to eight thirty now. It's so dark outside. Um, anything you want to talk about to wrap this up? I don't think so. Yeah. How about you, Charlie? No, I'm good. Thanks yeah. for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, yeah likewise. We appreciate you. coming and maybe we can sometime in the near future or distant future we can get a little more specific about something when uh, involved with bacteria or specific or viruses. Bacteria. Yeah, it'd be fun to talk now. viruses. It'd be good for yeah. me to talk about some of my new stuff and just yeah. kind of throw some ideas out and see what you guys think. And Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to. It'd be fun. I, I don't know shit about viruses, but I'll try <laughs> no. my best. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know shit about viruses either. So <laughs> Don't tell your, uh, your boss that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Charlie. All right, you guys. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family. It really just takes a couple of seconds. You can also leave us a review. We appreciate all forms of feedback. certainly helps us to keep our egos in check. And if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially. You can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sourdough. That's patreon.com backslash the sourdoe. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.